This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, I'm Joan Newberger, editor of Not Even Past and a professor in the Department of History at UT Austin, and your host today for 15-Minute History. We are here today with our other host of 15-Minute History, Christopher Rose. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you, Joan? And our topic for today is European imperialism in the Middle East. Where do you want to start? Where does this story start? I'm going to go all the way back to 1492. Uh, Sort of typical of an historian, I like the long view of history here, but 1492 is really where um, the balance of power in the Mediterranean shifts. 1492, of course, we remember in American history because it's the year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. But the other 1492 is that this was when the Spanish kingdoms finally managed to expel the final um, Moorish presence on the Iberian Peninsula, which was the Emirate of Granada, which fell in January of 1492. And, And by Moorish presence, you mean? These are Muslim... They're referred to as Moors in the literature, although, to be perfectly honest, most of them were born in Spain. There had been a Muslim presence on the peninsula since 711, part of the initial wave of conquests when Islam was first coming out of Arabia. And since about the 11th century, there had been this active, quote-unquote, reconquista is what it's called, which was a drive by the Christian kingdom in the north of the peninsula to retake what they believed was their territory. And this was finally accomplished in 1492 by Ferdinand and Isabella, who were king and queen of Castile and Leon. And I always like to remind people that they ruled together. It wasn't Ferdinand and his wife. They were actually co-monarchs. And the reason why this is significant is because it suddenly freed up a country that had been investing a lot of its treasury in war for centuries to do other things. For example, fund this crazy guy who wanted to go to Asia by sailing west. Um, The other thing it allowed them to do was start building a navy, which, of course, once they discovered the Americas and started trade, was very important for protecting that trade, uh, particularly the large amount of silver that was coming in from the New World. Over in the eastern Mediterranean, the major power in that time was Egypt, uh, which had the largest navy on the Mediterranean, and in fact also dominated trade with India at the time. Well, over in this part of the world, the Ottomans are starting to take over. The Ottomans had arrived in what is now Turkey in the 12th century, uh, were slowly consolidating their power. They took Constantinople in 1453. And in 1517, they conquered Egypt, which means that you now have two brand new powers who've never really had navies before, suddenly duking it out for control of the high seas and control of all of this trade. Um, The winners in all of this was Venice. Regardless of who was bringing goods into the Mediterranean, the Venetians were the ones who imported them into Europe and sold them at a markup, and it was vastly profitable. Columbus was looking for a direct route to Asia. The reason why Spain wanted direct access to Asia was to cut Venice and the Ottomans out and keep the profit for themselves. Okay, so Egypt has a navy, Spain has a navy, and they control the Mediterranean. Right. What is going on in North Africa at this time? North Africa at the time is basically a collection of little petty city-states. We can think of them as ports with fortresses and small navies. The region I'm thinking of when I'm talking about North Africa is basically modern-day Algeria and Tunisia. Morocco was sort of doing its own thing, but Morocco was more Atlantic-focused. But um, 
this area is collectively known as the Barbary Coast. And from the Barbary Coast, we get the Barbary Pirates. Now, we call them pirates, but they're more properly corsairs or privateers that are regulated by the governments they report to. What they were doing was exacting a tax on the value of goods on the ships that were passing through the waters they were controlling. This was a common practice when transporting goods over land to pay for safe passage through territory, but it wasn't a common practice at sea. Intercepting ships at sea for money is usually thought of as piracy. Sometimes ships and crews that didn't pay or fought back were then taken hostage. The Ottomans were never actually able to fully subdue this area. They tried. But one of the ways that the Ottomans ruled was that they would sign agreements with whoever controlled the territories to basically appoint a governor who would rule. They would kick back part of their profits to Istanbul, but then the system didn't really change very much. So basically, when it made sense to pay off the Barbary Beyliks, is what they were called, they would do so, and then they would be, you know, pirating on behalf of the Ottomans. But there was a lot of raids on Spanish ships, and there was a lot of raids on French ships. So the the Barbary pirates are coming out of the coast of North Africa and attacking both um, navies. Both navies, correct. Um, And at the time, most of North Africa was loosely controlled by the Ottoman Empire. Loosely in some form or another. And we're talking about the 17th century? We're talking about the uh, basically from the 1500s to the 1600s. One of the reasons why Philip II launched the Armada when he did in the late uh, 16th century was because he'd actually signed a non-aggression pact with the Ottoman Empire, basically guaranteeing right of passage for Spanish ships that were in the Mediterranean. Spain decided it was going to unilaterally pull back from the Mediterranean and become more Atlantic-focused. Their main rivals at the time were the growing power of the English, and so that was what gave them the assurance. France, however, never had such assurance. And uh, in addition to the fact that ships were being raided, the Barbary pirates would also raid villages. At their most powerful, they actually went up as far as Cornwall, Ireland, and Iceland. Mm -hmm. And there are stories about entire villages being kidnapped in the cover of night and taken down to North Africa as slaves. Algiers is one of the major slaving centers uh, in North Africa at this time. Over the course of the 16th to the 18th century, it's estimated there were about a million and a half people who were enslaved of European origin uh, and pressed into service in these ports. And it was a huge money-making industry for the Barbary Coast, because what they would do is they would ransom these slaves back to their various crowns. Uh, Miguel de Cervantes was actually one of these slaves. Uh, In Don Quixote, there was a section of the captive's tale that's semi-autobiographical. He was a slave for several years in Algiers. And they were treated terribly, by the way. They were usually kept in dungeons um, and given the most menial labor. Uh, The only way that they could improve their lot in life was to convert to Islam. But if they did that, then their countries would no longer ransom them. So it was basically the question of, do you want to suffer now or do you want to suffer later? Interestingly enough, uh, they also fought with each other. Uh, Morocco and the other Barbary Coast pirates began duking it out in the late 18th century, um, which is one of the reasons why Morocco was the first country to recognize the United States as an independent nation. What's the connection? They wanted the U.S. Navy, or the U.S. to come and back them, and British, uh, against these other pirates. And in fact, uh, one of the forgotten battles of the U.S., 
around the War of 1812 were the First and Second Barbary Wars. This was directly responsible for the creation of the U.S. Navy in 1794. And if you think of the Marine Hymn from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, well, Tripoli is in North Africa. And that was the Second Barbary War, where the American Navy basically went in to put down um, some of this piracy, because it was basically invoked by the U.S.-Moroccan Treaty of Friendship, which, interestingly enough, is actually the oldest treaty that the United States has signed that is still in effect. It was signed in 1786. But, uh, okay, but the, the U.S. Is, isn't playing a major role it's here, right? It's not playing right? a major what, role. What are France and, and Spain up to at this time? Well, in, by the time we get to the 18th century? By the time we get to the 18th century, Spain has declined, um, clearly. You know, they're starting to lose the narrow old colonies. France has taken over as the major imperial power um, at the time. And it goes whole scale in the early 1800s into trying to put down the Barbary piracy problem once and for all. They're tired of this. They've been dealing with it for 200 years. It also has to do with the fact that France, after the revolution in 1789, was internally unstable. And as you do when you're internally unstable, one of the things you do is you start looking for external opportunities to boost your own popularity, uh, particularly after the restoration of the French crown uh, in the early 19th century. Charles X basically went into Algeria on a very flimsy excuse. And the excuse was this. The day or the leader of Algiers had had a meeting with the French consul general and had hit him on the nose with a fly whisk. And uh, that happened in 1827. There was a three-year blockade. And then in 1830, France actually went in and invaded Algeria. Even before that, during the wars, the Revolutionary Wars, the Napoleonic army went into... To um, Egypt. To Egypt. Correct. I like to think about this as Napoleon was always annoying people on the Revolutionary Committee. And so it's still unclear entirely upon what pretense it was decided that Napoleon in particular was going to take a bunch of French resources and go off to Egypt. I always joke that, you know, he was standing around with his hand inside his coat and the committee was like, hey, Napoleon, why don't you go take care of that India problem? (laughs) And the India problem was this. Britain was making a lot of money off of its new trade deals with the Indian petty states. Britain hadn't consolidated its rule over the subcontinent, but France wanted a piece of the action. And it had been long theorized in European circles that the easiest way to get to India would be to build a canal through Egypt. And so in 1798, Napoleon basically goes off to invade Egypt in order to make this happen. The military campaign in Egypt was, and I cannot underscore this enough, a complete and utter failure. Basically, the British found out what was happening. The British Navy followed the French Navy into the port of Alexandria. Uh, Alexandria, which at the time was a village of about 2,000 people and something like 10,000 goats, uh, was bombarded, and I'm using finger quotes there, and the French, you know, victoriously walked ashore, you know, and started marching inland to go conquer Egypt, and the British sunk the ships that they had left a port in Alexandria. Napoleon managed to get back to France very quickly, but the rest of the French army was there until 1801. One of the things that they did do was they developed an encyclopedic description of Egypt. It was botanical, it was uh, zoological, and it depicted life in Egypt, both ancient and modern. And it really got the Egyptology craze going. Um, But what it also did was it broke Ottoman rule in Egypt. And so in 1803, a new governor was appointed, a man by the name of Muhammad Ali. 
Muhammad Ali, interestingly enough, was himself a microcosm of the Ottoman experience. He was an ethnic Albania, born in what is now northern Greece, um, who was raised a Turkish military officer at the Ottoman court and sent to Egypt. Um, But he was also a very shrewd man who managed to basically set up his own dynasty. Up until this point, Ottoman governors were cycled out every two years. He stayed and really decided to develop Egypt pretty much into an autonomous country of its own. So over the course of the 19th century, Egypt was able to basically gain its autonomy from the Ottoman Empire. It didn't hurt that Muhammad Ali basically threatened Constantinople with his own superior armies in the 1820s. And they left him alone after that. Now, one of the things that he did was he brought in French military advisors and French tutors for his sons. Uh, He himself never learned to speak French, but his sons were educated in the French style with European tutors. um, And come the 1850s, 1860s, uh, they have these grandiose ideas about bringing Egypt into the modern world. The making and undoing of Egypt is actually the American Civil War. Or more specifically, it was the Union blockade of southern ports, which choked off the supply of cotton to Europe. Egypt, along with India, stepped in to fill the void. One of the things that Muhammad Ali had had done over the tenure of his reign was that he had the marshlands in the Nile Delta drained, using French technology, and turned into productive farmland. And one of the crops they grew was cotton. Cotton, of course, got very valuable, and Egypt grew very wealthy. Uh, The viceroy of Egypt at the time, a man named Ismail, decided to expand the railway lines, uh, to build new modern European-style cities, new quarters of Cairo, rebuilt the entire city of Alexandria, and they decided, with British and French help, to fund the building of the Suez Canal, which opened in 1869. With all the money pouring into the country, they took loans from Europe at phenomenal interest rates. And when I say phenomenal, I mean phenomenally high, not phenomenal like we're seeing now when they're (laughs) very, very low, uh, because they could afford to pay all of that money back. Well, of course, in 1865, the U.S. Civil War ends, the South gets back online, and the price of cotton drops. And suddenly, Egypt is in massive debt to Europe. And like I said, this really turned out to be the unmaking of Egypt. Because in 1870, no one who took bets would have guessed that Japan over Egypt would be the major world economic power of the 20th century. Egypt had more railway lines per capita than any other country in the developing world. Um, It had a modern military, modern police, and was developing all these public sector institutions. Well, that all went away. In 1876, Britain and France took over control of Egypt's financial ministries. Basically, they took control of the banks. And in 1882, after a skirmish with a nationalistic prime minister who no longer thought that Britain and France should be running the country, Britain actually militarily took control of Egypt and made it a protectorate. This is where the story changes, because from that point on, Egypt was a colony. And then, of course, if we go back to France, I mentioned that they invaded Algiers after 1848. Uh, Algiers became a settler colony. It was annexed to France. Uh, Algiers was not a colony. It was part and parcel of France. It was France outre-mer, across the water. And uh, any French citizen who moved to Algiers was given land. They were encouraged to develop agriculture. They were encouraged to have children who then became French citizens. Uh, They built French schools. They built churches. They were there to stay. 
Of course, the problem was that there were five million non-French people in Algeria, but that's a different story that, that we'll talk about. We'll come back uh, in to turn, that. We'll come back to that one. Um, so this is the situation at, at in the middle of the of the nineteenth century. You have French and British presence all along the North African coast. Well, let's move over to the Eastern Mediterranean and talk about what's going on in what now is Turkey and the and the Near East today. Right. So uh, this is when the Ottoman Empire is in a state of decline. What's it declining from? <laughs> what is declining from is the period, uh, most notably in the 17th century, when Ottoman armies had threatened Vienna. The empire at its most expansive controlled everything from Algiers into what is now Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, Romania. They controlled part of the Black Sea coast of what is now Russia. They controlled Greece, as well as pretty much most of what we consider the modern Middle East, up to the border of Persia, which was its main military rival. All of this territory was Ottoman. And when was it at its greatest extent? In the 17th century. From that point on, it started losing things. Um, in the 19th century, of course, North Africa gets taken over by the French. Egypt is still nominally part of the empire until 1914, but it's been acting independent since 1805. Um, and then, of course, we have the fact that the Balkans are starting to break away. Greece gets independence in 1830. Uh, the Serbians begin revolting at the beginning of the 19th century. Russia's power is growing. And basically, the Ottomans are losing territory because they no longer have the military advantage. And they have the growing military power of Russia to the north. They have the growing military power of Russia to the north. They have the British and French navies nipping away at their possessions. They lose Cyprus. They lose Aden in 1839 because it becomes a refueling station on the way to Suez that the British take over. But what's interesting is that unlike other parts of Africa and other parts of Asia, they're not looking for direct European control. They're looking for resources. And the other thing they start doing, interestingly enough, is protectionism of local minority populations. The French decide to assume consular control over any Christian citizen in what is now Syria. Well, over any Catholic in what is now Syria, which is basically the Maronite population of Mount Lebanon. The Russians do the same thing with the Orthodox population. Remember, Greece is not yet a country, so even though we call them quote-unquote Greek Orthodox, Russia basically is trying to assume primacy among the Orthodox populations, to the point where at various points in the 19th century, depending on the place, some of them could actually claim citizenship and carry French or Russian passports, which exempt them from Ottoman laws, because under various treaties that are signed after the war, the Crimean War and various other other skirmishes, European powers had the right to try any one of their citizens who was accused of a crime in Ottoman territory in their own courts. Um, so literally, in a, in a city like Smyrna, which is now Izmir in western Turkey, or in a city like Beirut, you would have an Ottoman court and you would have a European court. And Literally, any crime involving a European was tried in the European courts, which were seen as more lenient. And there were even stories that um, people would commit crimes, and when the police were coming after them, they would just take out their passport and stand on it, and suddenly they were standing on French or Russian territory. This, of course, caused a huge problem. So this is one of the ways in which the Ottoman decentralization and decline really began to affect the citizens of, of the empire itself. 
Uh, okay, so by the um, by the late 19th century, you have the Ottoman Empire in decline in the Eastern Mediterranean. You have Russian power increasing, um, French and British power, colonial power at its height. Uh, and as the Ottoman Empire declines, there is a lot of territory in Eastern Europe and uh, Eastern and Central Europe and in North Africa that's kind of up for grabs, right? It's up for grabs. And, and, the, and there are a lot of independence movements as there, well, right? There's a lot of starting agitating for, for independence. Um, and, of course, into what all of this happens is World War I breaks out. And the Ottomans are on the side of the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians. And the, and the Russians are... On the other side. On the other side. And, the of French course, and what Russia wants is access through the Black Sea, through the Dardanelles, which runs right by Istanbul, the capital, uh, into the Mediterranean. They basically want to be able to get their ships out. So suddenly, this is this is all a very hot situation. And we'll pick up there in the next podcast, then. Sounds great. Thank you. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.